So we're continuing in the book of Romans this morning. I, I don't plan Mother's Day sermons. I just keep going where we're going. Um, but my Mother's Day gift to all of us, men, women, and youth alike, is that we have transitioned now out of wrath. We have a non-wrath sermon this morning, which is very exciting, the first time in five or six weeks. So we're going to take the, the next step into the book of Romans. Would you find your spot in Romans 3, verse 21? As you're looking for your spot, please stand. Today's text is Romans 3, 21 to 31. This is the Word of God. Romans 3.21 But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all who believe there's no distinction. For all have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. All are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No. But by the law of faith. For we hold that there is for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. The Word of God. Let's pray. Oh God, as we take a look at this glorious text that promises us so much, Please open our minds and our hearts to it. Pray especially for anyone who has to this point rejected this offer of redemption and propitiation. Oh God, today open their hearts to this call of the gospel that they might be saved. And for those of us who have already been washed by the gospel, by your word, I pray that you would cleanse us still as we confess to you our sin, clean our feet, forgive us, help us to uphold the law, not because that is what we need to do to be right with you, but because we are right with you, help us to worship you in this way. Oh God, be on my tongue, speak from me. Glorify Yourself and build up this church and add to our number those who are being saved even today. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. In the body of the sermon, we'll talk a little bit more about the context, but there is a broad context that is really important that we see. If you had just read from Romans 1.1 to chapter 3.20, there, there's something that 
Paul doesn't want you to miss. There's something that God through Paul doesn't want us to miss. And that's the broad theological context for what we're going to look at today. And if we don't know this, then we won't understand the glory of what we're going to see today. And the broadest theological context for the Word of God today is that God is holy and righteous. And that comes with certain implications. God is holy and righteous. There's no evil in Him. There's no darkness in Him. He's never sinned. He's, he's never been drawn into the point of any kind of wickedness. And that's what He requires of anyone with whom He's going to cohabit for eternity. He, he is righteous and He's only going to live, live alongside righteous people. We also have learned broadly, we're in the broad context, that God is faithful. God will remain faithful to His covenant. God makes promises and He will remain faithful to those promises. Last week, we looked at the fact that God made a covenant with blessings and curses. I'm going to get into that a little bit more in the first part of the body of the sermon. Uh, but what we found out there is that the faithfulness of God in, in context of His covenant making is that He will bring about the curses for those who break covenant. What we're going to see today is that God has also, though, made unconditional promises that don't come with curses. So God is faithful. If He is faithful to bring about the curses when people break the covenant, He is also faithful to keep His unconditional promises. How in the world does God keep unconditional blessings and at the same time keep His faithfulness to a covenant of cursing? It's a mystery of the Gospel. It's something that doesn't get fully sorted out in the Old Testament. We're going to look at that mystery today. Lastly, as far as broad context is concerned, God is very concerned to glorify Himself. And anyone who begrudges God this right just is not saved. Because the glory of God is the good of creation. To, for God to glorify Himself is, is to deliver to His creatures the greatest good. And if we would ask God to do anything less than to glorify Himself maximally, then we are asking for Him to give us less than His best. And so we, His creatures, want to get on board with God's plan of self-glorification. We don't glorify ourselves, we glorify Him. And it is wrong for any creature to glorify Himself or herself but it is absolutely right for the Creator to glorify Himself and we along with Him to give Him maximum glory. John Piper has built his entire, or should I say God has built John Piper's entire ministry around this very fact. You'll notice how I changed my wording. I think that's really important. God has built John Piper's ministry around this fact that, that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. And everything that John Piper says has a road back to that truth. And I commend John Piper to you. Don't go and just listen to anybody, but John Piper, go and listen to him. He has blessed me richly. So that's the broad context. And, and you can derive all of that from Romans 1, 1 to 3.20. Today we have five questions that we're going to look at. The first point of the five has to do with the immediate context of this. Verse. And, and the question that we're going to ask is, what's behind door number one? Because what we're going to look at today is the second question, what's behind door number two? That'll make sense a little bit more. And we see this, so in our text today, Romans 3, 21 to 31, this is all about door number two. So as we go through these 11 verses, we can divide them this way. Uh, Romans 3.21 to 25a, we're going to ask the question, well, what is behind door number two? We know what's behind door number one. That's from Romans 1.18 all the way to 3.20. That's what we've been preaching about. I'll spoil it for you, but we'll get into it a little bit more. It's wrath. Behind door number one is wrath. So, well, that's not a great door to walk through. Is there another door? 
Yes, there is. What's behind that door? Get the answer to that in verses 21 to 25a. Next question, when is door number two open? Or, to put it another way, when is it available? Is this door open now? Is it available for me to walk through now? Or do I have to walk through door number one? And that'll take us from the second half of verse 25 to verse 26. Fourth question that we're going to ask is, how should we feel about ourselves after we walk through door number two? So if door number two is open, we walk through it, how ought we to feel about ourselves? That's verses 27 to 30. And the fifth and final question is, what should we do with the law after we walk through door number two? And that's verse 31. Let's take a look. Question number one. What's behind door number one? This is the immediate context to today's preaching text. And as I said, between, behind door number one, all you will find is wrath. And most of humanity, as, as in my reading of the Bible, the way is wide. And many are they who find it. The path that leads to destruction. Most people choose, or whether they know they're choosing it or not, they, they go through door number one. And when they get to the other side of door number one, all they find is wrath. They find that they have failed to live up to God's perfect standard. standard. And what we found out in Romans 1, 18-32 is that there's wrath for Gentiles who have never read the Bible because at the very least they've seen that there's a creation and they have chosen to worship it rather than the Creator. So countless individuals who've never heard the Gospel will walk through door number one because they're creation worshipers. There's another group of people who have the Bible, whether they be Jews or nominal Christians, who will also walk through door number one. And they'll say, we didn't worship the creation, though they did, because we all do. We all have all kinds of idols. We worship the one true God. And then they'll meet with this untimely Scripture. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven then you'll say, well, didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many great miracles in your name? And I will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So there'll be a whole group of people who walk through door number one and they may, have, they may go to church every week, but they haven't actually understood the Gospel. And so the very law that is in the Bible, in the Old Covenant, but reiterated in the New Covenant, will condemn them. God will manifest His righteousness. He will remain faithful, which requires Him to enact the curses that He promised to enact against creation worshipers and unsaved Jews and nominal Christians who break the law. What does this look like? It looks like this. Death, then judgment. The verdict of guilty at the judgment which leads to condemnation, exile from God forever, which is the lake of fire, also known as hell. That's door number one. And it's real. And many, many people are going through that door. Even people that have been warned that there are two doors, that door goes to hell. Many people choose to go through that door. What's behind door number two? I hope there's another door, right? Like, if, if that's true, if what we've been talking about is true, is that, doesn't that not bubble up inside of you? I hope there's another door. I don't want to go through that door. I don't want to be judged and found guilty, condemned, and exiled from God. I don't want that. I don't want to go to hell. Oh, I, I hope there's another door. And there is. And that's what we're looking at today. So there's the context. Question number two. There is another door. Praise be to God. Well, what's behind door number two? What's behind this door? That's verses 21 to 25a. Let's take another look at it. 
This is such good news. We, we could just read this over and over and over again. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. That's Paul's way of saying there's another door. There's another way. There's another option. He says, but the law and the prophets bear witness to it. We'll get back to that. The righteousness of God, not by condemning sinners, but through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through a redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. The greatest news in the world is that the righteous God, the, the holy judge of the earth, who has to maintain perfect righteousness and justice at all times, has found a way to forgive sinners. Now we just take that for granted and it becomes so, so easy for us to conceptualize that God could forgive us. But it's actually quite a conundrum for God. How does God forgive people who have broken His righteous decrees? It's, it's, he can't just brush it under the, uh, under the carpet. He can't just close His eyes to it as we sometimes do in parenting. You know, just blind eye that because the, the discipline is just, we'll get to it another time. He has to deal with it. It is not possible. God chooses not to just wink at sin. He cannot just say, well, I forgive you. He has to kill us. His righteousness demands it. So the greatest news in the world is that the, this God whom we worship, and just side note, do we want a God like that? Yes, we want a God like that. The whole world is crying out for a God like that. We want a God who hates evil. We want a God who hates evil unrighteousness. We want a God who hates suffering and grief. We want a God who will make things right. The problem is we're on the wrong side of the equation. But we do want that. And so do unsaved people. We want a God that good. We want a God that big. But as I said, we're on the wrong side of the equation. So the bad news is if God were to be who God is, door number one. So the greatest news in the world is that this God, without changing who He is, staying perfectly holy and righteous and faithful to Himself, has found a way to forgive us. He found a way to manifest His righteousness apart from the law. Implication. God manifests His righteousness in the law by what? Judging, condemning, exiling us to hell. So, that's God manifesting His righteousness. That's what we looked at. But He's found another way to manifest His righteousness. Now, He's hinted at this in the law itself and in the prophets. So, I mean, this, this could be a sermon series. How has God hinted at this second way in the Old Covenant itself? But let me just give you a couple examples. Uh, the first five chapters of Leviticus. Don't hate on Leviticus, church. Because those first five chapters, do you know what they are? They're God's way at hinting at this other way. It's God saying, there is a second door here. Because the first five chapters of Leviticus are all about the sacrifices. They're all about uh, you know, guilt offering, sin offering, peace offering, fellowship offering, drink offering. And we yawn and fall asleep and complain and, and then it, it becomes a staple joke for preachers to say, oh, you got to Leviticus, how boring is that? But that's our salvation! That's door number two! The law is pointing to door number two. Why? Because the priest, after making atonement for himself, would place his hands once a year, this is Leviticus 16, place his hands once a year on a scapegoat, symbolically putting all of the sin of the nation on that goat. And then he would boot that, that goat into the wilderness. And it, that goat would 
carry the sins of the people far away. Then he'd take a second goat and he'd lay his hands on that second goat, uh, symbolically transferring all of the guilt of the people on that second goat, and then he would slit the throat of that goat and blood would pour out. Imagine if I did that up here. I want to teach you about door number two. Bring me a goat. <laughs> it's repulsive, right? It's the point. Because Jesus is that goat. A second way. Oh. God has found a way to maintain His righteousness, judge sin, and forgive the sinner. How? Well, we need a substitute. We need to transfer the sin from one person to another and then kill that other. It's amazing that God has found this. God is going to manifest His righteousness this way through door number two by the faith of all who believe. This is Paul's shorthand. And you know, honestly, Paul doesn't really explain it that well here. And the only way that I know what Paul is talking about is because I've read the rest of the Bible. So if, you, if you're cruising through Romans and this doesn't make a lot of sense, well, that's okay. Because all he's doing is introducing the topics that he's going to spend the rest of the book of Romans expounding upon. So I'm not going to preach the whole book of Romans today, but I will give you a couple of observations the question, if there is this door number two, and if door number two is, is centered around a substitute, a suffering servant, who will take my sin and your sin, and he will own it for himself, and then God will kill him, how do we get our sin onto him? That becomes a really important question. I, I don't want to be before God at the judgment seat with my sin still in me because if, if that's the case, I will die eternally. I don't go out of existence, but I go into a state of permanent death in exile from God. So, it's a really important question. How do we get our sin onto our substitute, which is Christ? Because that's that's the key that unlocks door number two. And Paul says here it's through faith. Faith. Believing that this is possible, yes. But faith here is more than that. Even the, even the devil understands this. Doctrinally, Satan and his demons understand the gospel. But they don't have faith. Why? Because they don't love it. And they don't love Him. So for, for all of us who can understand, we don't even need, need to understand all of the details of how God brought this about. But if we can understand that, that Christ carries our sin and we want Him to and we love Him for it, then God says, that's all you need. That's the faith that saves. That's the key that unlocks door number two. So if you want God to take the sin out of you and put it on Jesus, there's some time travel required. It means that somehow God takes your past, present, and current sin, or in future sin, and He takes it back in time and He nails it to the cross on Golgotha while Jesus hung there, bleeding and dying in your place. I don't have time to get into it, but we will as we go forward. We're, we're told that we're even hanging there with Him. There's, there's this union between us and Christ. We actually die with Him. And once you make this transaction with God by faith, that is understanding it at least in His basic contours, and, and then loving God for doing that for you, you're united with Christ, and you are actually now already on the other side of death. When did you die? Two thousand years ago on Calvary's hill. It's amazing. You were there with Him. You were crucified with Christ. Don't ask me to explain it to you. But it means you will never die. You say, oh, the preacher has lost it. I haven't lost it. 
when your body is discarded, when it stops working, you don't die. You transition to a new and better way of living. And you are present with the Lord. That's why Paul says, for me to to live is Christ, okay? If I have to be in this sin-death environment, I will. And I'm going to give everything I have to Christ and to His church. I'm not going to worry about all kinds of stupid nonsense. I use the word stupid intentionally. It's all this kind of worldliness. I've already died. So if I'm in this body, in this sin-death environment, my priority is the gospel and Christ and the church. And for me to die is gain. That is, if I could just let this body go, I would be more alive in the presence of Christ. And, And we're for a time disembodied, and for a time I'm speaking in human terms, I don't even know what that means when you're up in heaven. What's the space-time continuum in heaven. I don't know. But it's timefulness. And we know that according to this space-time continuum, that disembodied state will only be for a time. And then God will raise our bodies back to life with no sickness, no weakness, no sinfulness. We'll live forever glorified like Christ. So you believe in this and all that is yours. Who, who's eligible for this? I think that's the next question I would ask. This, this sounds pretty good. I would love to already be on the other side of death. I don't need to fear death then. I don't need to hold on to this life then. Who's eligible? Just the Jews? No. For all who believe. Paul goes on there, right? And he says, let's take a look at it. Verse 22, it's through this faith, if you, if you understand the basics of it, and you love the gospel, and you love him who has taken your sin, this is available for all who believe. There's no distinction. We've already gone over that. All have sinned. That is, both Jew and Gentile. All fall short of the glory of God. All are justified by His grace as a gift. There's no one that earns this but Christ Himself. And all of this through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So if, if you're a human being, you're eligible. Have you taken advantage of this? It's sort of like, I was growing up, I haven't seen this recently, but I used to read the cereal box, Right? rather than just pour cereal out of it. And there was always these little gimmicks that you could send in and get a toy back, except for people in Quebec. <laughs> that seems unfair. Like, why not all Canadians? Like, yeah, they speak French, but stop punishing them for it. Like, <laughs> let them get the little toy from the Shreddy's box. Even Newfoundland is getting these toys. Sorry. The gospel's not like this. Everyone can get salvation by grace through faith. It's a gift. So how does this happen? I've talked about it a little bit. There's a substitute. But there's a really important word here. We're told that all of this is a gift through redemption. And all of this redemption, all of this door number two goodness is coming Because of Jesus Christ, verse 25, take a look at it. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. And that's all Paul says about how God accomplishes this for us. And we're going to get more into it as we go through the book of Romans. But it says, God put forward a propitiation. The propitiation is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So He who is fully God, always one with the Father, second person of the Trinity, the Word became flesh. And the enfleshed Word who is fully God, everything that makes God who God is, Jesus is. But He's also enfleshed. Everything that makes you and me human, He is also. And this one who is all of God and all of humanity, 
human body, human soul, human mind, human will, human volitions, everything. God said, I'm going to put him forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by grace. What does this mean? The key word there is propitiation. What is propitiation? It has to do with this sacrifice. What have we been talking about for the last uh, several weeks? Wrath. Propitiation is a substitute for wrath. So, what we've learned so far is God hates sin and He has to pour out His wrath, humanly speaking, on sin. And if on sin, on sinners. This is a real problem for us. What is God's wrath? How does God pour out His wrath? He steps away from us, all of His grace, all of His goodness, all of His presence, so that we are exiled from Him and we're in hell. So, so God is going to pour out His wrath in that way onto us. But God says, I've found another way. You put all of your sins in Him, that is, the enfleshed Word, the God-man, Jesus Christ. Let Him be your substitute, your representative, and I will pour out my wrath on him. And we see this. This is why when, when Jesus is hanging on the cross and he quotes Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is Jesus expressing to us that he is receiving the wrath that we deserve. That's propitiation. Because everyone in hell will be crying some version of that. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Though it won't be said that way. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What does that mean? Weeping for self. Where's God's goodness? But gnashing teeth. It's your fault, God. You have abandoned me. See, the people who go through door number one don't blame themselves. They blame the holy, righteous judge. But Jesus, even while He was propitiating the wrath of God, did not blame God, but lamented. Big difference. You don't see weeping and gnashing of teeth in Christ on the cross. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But not woe is me and I hate you, God. Oh, the perfection of Christ, even in hell. Because the cross was hell. Total abandonment. The perfection of of Christ propitiating God's wrath. We see a nice snapshot of this in Galatians 3. Why don't you flip there? It's just forward uh, three books. Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 through 14. It's the only other place we're going to go this morning, but it's worth looking at. This gives us a really nice picture of propitiation. And while you're flipping there, I'll just remind you of Palm Sunday. Isaiah 59, another great picture of propitiation. Uh, the divine warrior, God Himself, straps on uh, armor for battle and He's going to strike down all of the apostate men, women, and children. And so He sends forth a Redeemer to Zion. This is all propitiation. If you weren't here Palm Sunday, go back and listen. Galatians 3, verses 10-15. through 15. All who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. This is what we've been talking about for weeks. For it's written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Part of the covenant was you have to keep covenant perfectly in order to get the blessings. Verse 11. Now, it is evident that no one is justified, that is, no one is declared to be righteous before God by the law. Because everyone's broken the law. For, implicit, it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. There's another case. Uh, Habakkuk, I forget exactly. Is it 2-4? I, I can't remember. But it's in Habakkuk where the prophet bears witness to door number two. The righteous shall live by faith. But, by the, uh, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Anyone who tries to be righteous before God by keeping the law shall live by all the, the law, is what it says. Verse 13, now we get to propitiation. Christ redeemed us, redeemed us, purchased us 
from the curse of the law by, how did He purchase us? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Propitiation. Habakkuk 2.4. Thank you, brother. Propitiation. Curses falls on, on everyone who breaks the law. We're all going to be cursed unless God propitiates the curse, and He does. He sends Jesus and He puts all of the curses of eternal hell on Him so that we will never be abandoned by God, not even when we lay aside these bodies. That's door number two. That's an amazing door to walk through. Propitiation. He gets the curses, I get the blessings. Yeah. How does one appropriate this? Again, it's repeated, verse 25, it's by faith. By faith. Next question I would ask, and this takes us to the next set of verses, is, well, when is door number two open? Like, is it locked shut right now? Can I, can I get through that door in my lifetime? Can I walk through that door now? Or do I have to still go through door number one? And we get the answer to this in two parts. Let's just read this as we go. The first answer to this question is, and this is a mystery only revealed in the New Covenant, but actually is true that God's not constrained by space and time the way we are. So God says this door, though it only opens after Jesus dies on the cross, He's going to make it available retroactively to everyone who came before the door was open who wanted to walk through that door. This is great news for all the Old Testament saints. I mean, Abraham and Moses and David are not walking through door number two unless door number two is open to them retroactively. I don't have time. Again, there's another really intriguing sermon to go through is well, what happened to them after they died, etc., etc., and how are they now uh, having walked through door number two? Can't get into that. But it's interesting. You should ask those questions. Think on those questions. But it's open retroactively. There are Old Testament saints. Take a look at Romans chapter 3, verse 25, halfway through. This... What, what is this? This, that is the propitiation of Jesus Christ on the cross. Jesus went to hell on the cross for us, became a curse for us. He, he like the, the goat on the Day of Atonement, shed His blood for us. He died for us so that the opposite of those things would be true for us. Blessing and life in abundance. This propitiation was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. See, the Old Testament has another problem. It does rightly identify certain men and women as saints. The Old Testament rightly says that David was a prophet and a saint. And there's countless others. Abraham and David are two that we'll look at in, in uh, chapter 4. But there's a real problem there, because in order for them to be saints under the old covenant, God has to withhold his righteousness. He has to withhold his judgment, so God becomes inconsistent. He, he judges Saul, but blesses David. He hates Esau, but he loves Jacob. He says to Moses, I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion, but I will hate whom I hate. And in the Old Testament, that makes God inconsistent. And so what Paul is saying here is, those things are true. We've rightly read the Old Testament. We, God does elect some and not others. And, and if we only had the Old Testament, that would make God inconsistent. But the propitiation of the cross of Jesus Christ was necessary. Why was it necessary? It was necessary to show God's righteousness. 
Because now we can look back and say, oh, God carried their, their sin forward in time and put it in Jesus on the cross. Oh, God took the curse that should have fallen on Abraham, Moses, and David and Jacob and all the rest. He's taken that curse and he's withheld that curse and given them blessings, not because they earned it, but because the blessing that is theirs in Christ was retroactively attributed to them. It's taken back for them. Oh, so, so they entered into eternal life not because they did anything, but because they were forgiven in their future on the cross. And unless all of their sin is paid for at some point, and we're told here it was paid for on the cross, God is not right to elect them unto salvation. He is not acting righteously without the cross. So the door was open retroactively. Now we also find out that the door is now actively open. The great advantage that we have is there's no shadows anymore. There's two doors. Wrath and propitiation. Death, life. Exile, promised land. Which door do you want to walk through? Because they're both open. Go through door number two. We see that in verse 26. It was to show His righteousness at the present time. We're in the present time. It was from the time of the cross right up until the end. So that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Oh, this is a whole sermon right here. But let me just quickly say this. God shows that He is just because He punishes every sin. None of my sins or your sins, if you're in Christ, go unpunished. Someone has to bleed and die for my sin and your sins. It'll either be me and you or it will be Jesus Christ. But someone has to shed blood. Someone has to die. That's the justice of God. So the cross maintains the justice of God. But it also shows the mercy, love, and justification of God. God says, but if you want, I'll, I'll die for you in the person of my son. So he maintains his justice, maintains his righteousness, but he also becomes the justifier of sinners. He is now able to say, I forgive you because I've punished your sin. It's great news. Which leads us to our next question. How should we feel about ourselves then when we walk through door number two? Proud? Look at me. I'm better than the rest. I'm better than all those pagans out there. I'm better than all the unbelievers. And oh man, I see this on Facebook. To our shame, the witness of the church on social media is hideous. And it makes my blood boil, all the hatred and vitriol of Christians or so-called Christians against unsaved people. I hate it, and God hates it. So if that's you, just stop it. Stop with all the hate and judgment and condemnation on social media against unsaved people. Sorry, I just I didn't expect that, but I'm wrathful about that. I just hate that. It just it blasphemes the name of God when Christians or so-called Christians do that. How should we feel about ourselves after we walk through door number two? Oh, thankful, worshipful, humble, contrite, filled with pity, compassion. Love for others. Not a lot of judgmentalism. Not a lot of superiority, but a, a pleading. Oh, I found another door. Don't go through door number one. Come with me through door number two. Take a look at it on ver verses 27 to 30. What becomes of our boasting? excluded everyone who's walked through door number two knows that they've got nothing to boast about but what kind of law by a law of works no 
You haven't done anything. Your good works are not the key that opens this door. It's, it's entirely by the law of faith. God has written the law of faith. You, you put your faith in your love in Christ who has made this possible, and it's yours. We hold that, no, uh, that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Verse 29 doesn't punch us as hard as it should. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Is God the God of Republicans only? Is he not the God of Democrats also? This one is so ridiculous because we're Canadian. You know how many Canadian Christians have spent, they've wasted so many hours on American politics. Like we're Canadian. Is God not the God of Republican, uh, Democrats also? Yes. Well, I keep up to date too, so I'm not saying shut your ears to international politics, but come on, you're not voting in those elections. Is God not the God of the NDP and the Liberal Party? Is God not the God of our Prime Minister also? Is God not the God of homeless people and homosexual people? And transgender people? Yes, He's the God of them too. Is God not the God of, of uh, Muslims? And self-professing atheists? Oh yes, He's the God of them too. Is God not the God of girls who are falling into teenage pregnancy? Is God not the God of women who have aborted their babies? Oh yes, He's the God of them too. Where's boasting? All of us who have walked through door number two. So we go out into the world with full hearts, compassion, mercy, grace, love, we say, we found a better way. Do we talk to people about their sin? Yes, we do. I mean, it's biblical. But not to condemn, but to plead. Come with me through a different door. Now, am I uh, negating God's sovereignty? Not at all. We are the means through which God sovereignly elects. That's Romans 10. We'll get to it. But we go out there as Christ's ambassadors, not as self-righteous hypocrites. What should we do with the law after we walk through door number two? That's our last question. Verse 31. Do we overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. You see what Paul is getting at here based on everything that I've just said. Good works are not the key that will get you through the door. It's faith. So if that's true, then, well, who cares about good works then? Just let's lead a, a parade of all the wicked people who are not willing to repent of their sin. That whole list of people where I just said, is God not the God of them too? They have to repent or else the door remains locked to them. So we don't want to swing our pendulum so far from the high and mighty, judgmental, hypocritical, so-called Christian all the way over to the licentious, everyone is welcome, you don't need to repent of your sin. We identify sin, we help people to identify sin with compassion, with love, with grace, with mercy, not with boasting. We help them to identify it, then we walk them through the valley of repentance, which is a sweet and glorious valley, and through the little door that only the humble, contrite, repentant sinner can enter into. 
So we uphold the law. And as saved Christians, then, we say we want to do what is right and good. We don't do what is right and good in order to earn God's favor. But because we have it, we desire to honor He who has given us also the law. We know what He desires of us. Let's do it. Not to be made right, but because we have been made right to the glory of God. It's an act of worship because our dead, cold, blackened Stony hearts have been regenerated, made new. They've come alive. They beat like hearts of flesh. And our soul desires to please our Maker. In these first three chapters, then, the stage has been set to dig deep into the glorious truths of the gospel. And in these first three chapters, if I could summarize, this is what Paul has done. Oh, people, people of the world, every kind of person, there's two doors. The first door, if you try to earn your place by being righteous, or if you worship the creation, you'll go through that door, and on the other side is wrath. But there's another door. It's the gospel door. And this is the door of propitiation where God sent forth His Son to become a curse so that we could receive all the blessings and eternal life of God. So my challenge to you, which door? Which door? Follow me as I follow Christ through door number two. Let's pray. God, you are so amazing. That you have found a way to punish my sin and to forgive me. Oh God, you didn't need to do that. This is entirely an act of your love and your grace. And Jesus, we praise you. You could have stayed in heaven fully content to judge all of us wicked people at the end. But instead, you came down. And in coming down, you opened a second door with your blood. I pray for this church. Please grant us safe journey through door number two so that on the other side, I might behold all these faces of men, women, and children that I love. In Christ's name, amen.